Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Ask anyone who's had a major water leak and they'll tell you most of the damage could have been prevented if they had been able to stop the leak sooner. Groa, maker of innovative German-engineered showers and faucets, is helping busy homeowners like you prevent water damage and protect your home even when you're away. The new Groa SenseGuard is an intuitive, smart water controller that detects leaks, alerts you via your smartphone, and automatically shuts off your water supply before more damage is done. Protect your home, vacation, or rental properties with Groa SenseGuard and quickly stop water damage before a drip becomes a flood. Listeners of Inside the Hive can save 35% on Groa SenseGuard only at groa.us slash hive19. That's G-R-O-H-E dot U-S slash H-I-V-E and the number 19. Once again, save 35% on Groa SenseGuard at groa.us slash hive19. All right, welcome to Inside the Hive. Uh, I'm not even going to do an introduction. I'm going to have you introduce yourself. Jason Flom, thank you for coming all the way from New York City just to be here today. Just kidding, you were here already. Uh, Tell our listeners who you are, why you're here, and then we're going to jump into some of the craziest fucking things I've ever heard in my life. So let's go. Okay, sounds good. Well, so I'm here. First of all, I am, you know, ostensibly a music business uh, mogul. I've been in the music business my whole life. I've been served as chairman and CEO of three of the biggest record companies in the world. Now I have a company called Lava Records. My band, Greta Van Fleet, actually won Best Rock Album last night, so it's exciting. But, um, well, it's not last night anymore, but on yes. the, at the Grammys yes. on Sunday. Yes. Um, but I think we're here to talk about my role as the founding board member of the Innocence Project and the host of the podcast, Wrongful Conviction. So how did you... So you're a music guy, and you, you get involved with starting the Innocence Project. How did that happen? Well, I didn't, certainly didn't start the Innocence Project. What happened was I got involved in criminal justice reform in 1993. So I like to say I was in criminal justice reform before it was cool. But I'm really happy <laughs> that it's cool now because we have a lot of cool people that are involved yes. in it. And we have some, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to make it trivial at all. We have an amazing group of dedicated uh, activists from both sides of the aisle. From you know, when, when, you know, when the Cokes and the ACLU are aligned on something, you know it's time for a change, right? Yeah. And that's where we're at now. So... Um, and, and of course, you know, everybody from Instagram uh, celebrities to uh, uh, hip hop artists to, um, you know, uh, learned people from all, you know, it, it's amazing. So, um, but I got involved because of a story I read in the newspaper in 1993 about a case of a guy named Stephen Lennon who was serving 15 years to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge. And the reason it was in the newspaper, Nick, was because. Uh, his mother, Shirley, had been trying to get clemency. He'd already been in for eight years. He was the same age as I was at the time, 32, so it really struck me. And, you know, I had been, you know, I'd been sober for a while by this point, um, having gone to rehab and everything. And he, she had gotten letters written from the judge, the warden. Geraldine Ferraro had even written a letter on behalf of Shirley's son, Stephen. And uh, 
Governor Cuomo over Mario Cuomo had turned it down. So that's why I made it into the newspapers. And I read this and I freaked out. I just couldn't understand how in America you could be serving 15 to life for a nonviolent first offense cocaine possession charge in New York State. I decided to get involved. And long story short, the only pro bono, the only defense attorney I knew was a guy named Bob Kalina. And I knew him because he represented my rock stars. This is where my worlds collide, right? So he represented Skin Row and Stone Temple Pilots, both of whom were getting arrested weekly back then, right? <laughs> so I had him on speed dial. I called him up. He agreed to take the case pro bono. Six months later, we ended up in a courtroom in Malone, New York. I sat there holding Mrs. Lennon's hand when the judge reversed uh, uh, the charges on a technicality and sent Stephen home. And that was the most profound experience of my life. And that's what got me started on this, you know, quixotic quest to reform the criminal justice system. So I listened to a bunch of the podcasts and uh, these stories. And they're like, I mean, you couldn't, if you made them up, people would say that's bullshit. Um, one of them that really kind of stood out to me was the the story of um, of Sonia Sonny, uh, what's her last name? Sonny Jacobs. Sonny Jacobs. Um Let's just walk listeners through a few of these stories uh, so you get to actually tell them this time rather than ask the person to tell them. And um, just so they kind of get an idea of how how pretty fucked this whole thing is. Yeah. I mean, um, I like to say on Sunny's case um, and the her podcast was, I think, the fourth episode of season one of Wrongful Conviction. And the title of it is Love is Better Than Revenge because that's something I heard her say. Um, hope is better than hopelessness and love is better than revenge. Um, which is, we'll get back to that in a minute. But her story, you know, when I describe Sonny's story, I like to say that if you put Quentin Tarantino and Victor Hugo in a room together, maybe a cave, with as much booze, you know, whiskey, whatever, (laughs) right? And you said, write the craziest shit you've ever written, they would stop short of writing the Sonny Jacobs story because it's too crazy. Like it, it, it's like what you said, Nick, if, if you didn't know that it was true, you wouldn't believe it. I hear myself telling the story and I'm like, that can't be true. Yeah. I was trying to tell my wife the story after listening to the podcast and she was just like, wait, this is fiction. I'm like, no, this is real. This really happened to a human being. She's a real person. You can, you can talk to her, you know, she'll, she'll hug you you know she's just the, the warmest she still wears love beads and she's still like you know she, she teaches meditation and yoga she's amazing um and i just to go back one second um i just wanted to say i am the founding board member of the innocence project so i joined after it Got had it. started just yep. because of a story i saw on tv about a case of a guy named david keating who had been sentenced to death and was scheduled to be executed when the innocence project which was a nascent organization in those days had found the dna that proved his innocence and gotten him freed and that's when i walked into i just went to Innocence Project. You can't do that anymore, by the way. Don't do this if you're listening. <laughs> but I just walked in and said, I'll do whatever you guys need me to do and then some. And uh, and it was Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld in a, in a conference room with a briefcase, a phone, and a dream. And you know now, hundreds and hundreds of exonerations later, uh, dozens of legislative changes later, um, it's been an amazing journey. But Sonny Jacobs, let's discuss. Let's discuss. Because, um, you know... So she's a hippie? Sonny was, she likes, I think she says, I was a hippie, a wife, and a mother when I went to prison and I came out an orphan, a widow, and a grandmother, right? Mm. So she and her, um, well, he was her baby daddy, right? Uh, Jesse Teferro, were in, they're from the Carolinas. This was the, I think, 79 when this happened. It's a period piece. And they were in a car, they, their car had broken down, and they were getting a ride with their two kids, um, Christina and Eric. 
and uh, a friend of Jesse's who was mixed up in some, you know, some stuff, whatever, back then, you know, it was the 70s. He had offered to give them a ride. They were taking a ride from him. Cop came, shined a light in the window. It was actually early in the morning. And rather than hand over his license and registration, the driver, um, whose name I'm forgetting because Sonny won't mention it, mm. which is understandable, came up with a gun and shot the police officer, who was a state trooper, and then got in a gun battle with the other cop, who was actually a visiting Canadian constable, because if it was a movie, that's what it would be. Yep. And, you know, he killed that guy and then put everybody in the cop car. You know, it's so crazy that Sonny's son, Eric, who had been sleeping in the back seat, got out, you know, sort of stumbled out in the middle of a gunfight, right, and slipped on the dead police officer's blood, right? I mean, like, Jesus, Tarantino, anyone, like I said? Yeah. So... They get in the cop car. The driver now realizes that this is not a good look to be driving around Fort Lauderdale in the morning in a cop car when you've literally got every cop in the, in the, in the county looking for you. Um, and so they, they grab a guy, another guy. An old guy was taking out his, his garbage or getting the newspaper or whatever. Steal his car, which was an orange Cadillac because, again— you know, of course, you need the orange to be I mean, seen by the police. Yeah. So, and, and, and you know, who even? But the Cadillac plays an important role in this because ultimately they get chased down. He tries to run a roadblock. There's another gun battle. As I said to Christina, who was 10 months old at the time, who was on my podcast, where she spoke publicly for the first time ever about what it's like growing up with your mom being in, in, on death row and your father executed for crimes they didn't commit. I said to Christina, you survived two gun battles before you were one. <laughs> and she said, yeah, you know, I mean, the fact is the Cadillac saved us because yeah. back then they were built like brick shit houses, right? Yeah. It was like a tank. So um, the cops, uh, in this case, they were pretty angry, understandably. Uh, one, two of their, you know, uh, uh, fellow officers had been killed. Um, but they, the anger was misplaced. Um, they took it out on Sonny and Jesse. And um, they ended up being um, tried separately. Jesse was sentenced to death. Sonny was sentenced to life. And the judge overrode her death sentence. So the judge's her, name is... Um, uh, Maximum Dan. Maximum Dan. He's got a little... This is like the craziest part. He's got a little mini uh, electric chair on his desk. Right. Because uh, um, why wouldn't you have that if you were a former state trooper turned judge? Right, so we have a former state trooper who has a, a little electric chair which would buzz. He would like that, touch it on his desk. And Florida was one of only two states in that uh, back three then that, back had, then. that had judicial override, yeah, right? Judicial oh, there are three, override. right? Sorry. Yeah. So um, now there's only one. But uh, so Alabama, the, the jury, yes, Alabama, good guess. <laughs> if we were on Family Feud, you would have just won. So anyway. So there's only uh, one state now, but back then the jury sentenced Sonny to life and the judge overrode their sentence and sentenced her to death. So I, I want to stop you here for a second. So part of the, the thing with the jury was that the jury, the, the district attorney at the time who was trying the case uh, wanted to rise up in power. Uh, and this is the thing that I can't get my head around. The other stuff is like, okay, shit happens. You know, I can see how those things can happen, even though they are like a Tarantino movie. But you have the you have this district attorney who is trying the case, and it's very clear that the jury doesn't believe that Sonny did it. So the attorney goes to a woman he finds in the jail who had been in the jail cell with Sonny and says, "I'll let you go if you say that she admitted it that she admitted to doing it." Right? Yes, and this is an, a, a really terrible thing about our system is that jailhouse snitches play a 
prominent role in so many cases when they shouldn't be allowed to play any role in any cases, really, because everyone knows, I mean, anyone with a sixth grade education knows that, you know, you can't bribe a witness, right? But the government can offer someone who's in jail a, a a free pass, right? A get out of jail free card, literally, and say, all you have to do, and what they did is they went to this woman and said, listen, this Sonny Jacobs is an evil person. She killed, she's responsible for the deaths of two officers. You'll be doing society a favor. Let's, we don't know exactly what they said, but something along those lines. And this is a woman who was facing jail herself for passing bad prescriptions. She was a college student. You know, she probably, I mean, it's hard to get inside of her head, but, you know, you could kind of see where that would break down. And she invented a story. She said, she goes in court and testifies and says, she told me she did it and she can't wait to get out and do it again. Now, you have to picture Sonny is about 5'2", right? She's a, like I said, she's still a hippie love child. And on top of everything else, she had her two kids with her. Like, none of this ever made any sense, right? Who gets in a gun battle when you have your, your two, two kids, kids in the car, yeah, like yeah. especially a ten month old that you're probably holding the entire time. I mean, she was in the back, and yeah, I mean, so, so the jury doesn't believe that she, they believe she did it, but they don't believe that she did it. So they, there's one guy who 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 decides I can't put the death penalty through one of the jurors, and so she gets life in prison. But Maximum Dan decides to override it, and she gets the death penalty. Right. So, so then she goes into this prison by herself because there's no other woman on death row. And she was there for five years. And so at what point does this start to turn in her favor? Wow, it takes a long time to get to that point. No, she was, as you said, Nick, she was the only, there had been a moratorium on the death penalty in Florida um, for several years. So they opened up a wing of the prison to create a death row for her. So she was the only person. This is like, I mean, it's so Kafka-esque or Dostoevsky or whatever you want to, like, it's nuts, right? So there she is alone, in this wing of a prison, in this little six by nine foot cell with a Bible and a law book, I think. And she had no, no ability to speak with anyone because the guards weren't allowed to speak with her because they didn't want any of the guards developing any sort of, you know, personal connection to her when she was due to be executed, right? Or they didn't have a date yet, but, you know, they knew they were going to execute her. So for five years, she didn't speak to anyone. And then ultimately she was allowed back in the general population and had to relearn how to use her vocal cords, which again, just another insane aspect of this. So the kids, Christina and Eric, Eric was nine, Christina was 10 months old when this happened. Um, Eric was nine years old. They had been taken in by Sonny's parents and then Sonny's parents were killed in a commercial plane crash, which, you know, she talks about how that was, and I'm getting the chills thinking about it. She says that was really the lowest part. And, you know, what could be worse? I mean, that's just... It's Your kids are going to go off to foster care. Your parents just died. You're on death row. Your husband's on death row in a separate place. You know, it's like you just... And you didn't do anything, right? Except take a ride from somebody. Wrong place, wrong time to the extreme. And, you know, when Christina came on the podcast and spoke for the first time about, you know, this experience, she's 40 years old now. It was... Uh, it was really, it really took my breath away. Um, the, the, you know, the, the misery that this family had to endure and the fact that they've come out of it with, uh, especially when you look at Sonny, I mean, her, the rebirth of Sonny or, or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's not a rebirth. It's not a religious thing necessarily, but it's like the, the, the grace and the courage that she exhibits on a daily basis are, are unbelievable. Yeah. You can hear that in her voice. Okay. So, so then they, She's trying to get out of prison because she didn't do it. And at the same time, her husband is not having as much luck in even stopping 
himself from going to the electric chair. No, he was he was executed in one of the most gruesome executions in the history of this country. Um, the electric chair supposedly malfunctioned, uh, so he had to be electrocuted three times. It took him thirteen and a half minutes to die, and his head caught on fire. So, and there's a I was reading online. There's a belief that they because they believed he was a cop killer that that they kind of did that intentionally. Well, what the you know the the sort of the the predominant theory is is that they substituted and this is so grotesque to even talk about it right because you know i'm obviously fervently anti-death penalty um but then when you take it to the next level and you go okay so what's what seems to be true is that they substituted a regular sponge for a sea sponge because they put a sea sponge underneath that helmet they would wear, which conducts electricity, whereas a regular sponge just catches on fire. So that seems to have been what happened. So he was made to suffer an agonizing death over the course of 13 and a half minutes, which I think that was the last time the electric chair was used in the state of Florida. So eventually... Um Sonny gets uh, gets an opportunity. They, she has some friends that get a lawyer. They do some research. They are able to prove that she def- predomin- She just didn't do it. She had nothing to do with this thing, and she has an opportunity to get out. And what does she do? Well, I mean, yeah. This is years, years. She, she went in at 23 years old. This is when she's 47. She's, I, think, I think she was in for 17 years. Yeah. Got it. Um, so, uh, so the, uh, she... Um, I mean, the you know you'll have to listen to to her episode of, of wrongful conviction. And you you podcast. have to listen to it. It was it's like a it'll make your blood boil, but also feel hopeful. Yes, because we're and we're skipping over some incredible details because we just don't have time. But the fact is that there there is some stuff that happened along the way that just is is uh, it's stranger than fiction, literally yeah. stranger than fiction. Yeah. But and the cra- and the amazing yeah. thing is, so finally. So finally, the, the real killer tries to confess a number of times. The driver of the car, who actually was sentenced to life, he testified against Sonny and Peter, so he got a deal for a life sentence instead of a death sentence. He had been a convicted felon prior to this, which is why he didn't want to be arrested again and decided it would, you know, he would do what he did, which was such a reprehensible act, obviously, but, um, and cowardly. But so he, um, so he had uh, testified against them, and now he had... You know, had a, I think he had a religious awakening or something like that. But whatever it is, he tried to confess many times over the years, and they just kept jutting him up. But I guess that had somehow or other gotten out. And the only witness against her, the jailhouse snitch by now, had um, had learned that the whole thing had been made up and had come back and, and said that she was sorry and apologized to Sonny. And, and had a heart attack on the stand. Yeah, well, that is a thing, right? I mean, it's an amazing thing. She came back to testify after she learned uh, that she had, you know, been tricked by the authorities and to testify against an innocent woman and put her on death row. And so she came back to testify, but she was so petrified of this particular prosecutor. And this was this the same prosecutor who had been the one who actually gave her the deal in the first place? That's my understanding, yeah. And so she gets on the stand, and it's, it's amazing to hear Sonny tell it, because she gets on the stand and she testifies for the defense, looks at Sonny in the eye and apologizes. And then... The prosecutor gets up to cross-examine her, and Sonny's talking about how 
she's not really saying anything. And, and then she's like clutching her chest. And, and I'm like, what's going on? And, and then she has a heart attack on the stand. Again, are we really having this yeah. conversation? Because I'm, my head's about to explode, but it's true. And so, of course, you can't use the testimony for the defense if you can't be cross-examined. But she was ultimately recovered, was able to testify. The real killer had, had come clean. Jesse, uh, tragically, had been executed by now. And so Sonny was offered a deal um, for a, uh, to take a, what's called an Alford plea, which basically allows the uh, authorities to maintain the conviction, right, to uh, keep the case closed. Uh, it means that uh, she would not be able to sue for compensation or anything else, and she would live with a record uh, for the rest of her life. But she agreed to take it. And this just shows you what a tough, amazing person Sonny is because she, she comes to the hearing and one of the conditions was that she wasn't allowed to say anything right yep. at this hearing where she was going to be given her freedom in exchange for this plea yep. after having been through this unbelievable ordeal and so <sighs> so, <laughs> so she's sitting in court holding her tongue as someone is up there some DA or something is up there you know basically lambasting her and attacking her and you know, Just to make it look like that's the state and the government hadn't done anything wrong, and talking about what a terrible they person knew. she is, and what a travesty this is, she's being shot, whatever the hell it was, right? So she pipes up and goes, risking the whole thing, risking the whole thing, <laughs> and this is one of the greatest lines in the history of lines. She goes, "Excuse me, Your Honor," and and the, everyone in the courtroom, you can imagine, must have frozen, right? And and she goes, "Could I have a glass of water?" Because I have a bad taste in my mouth, and you just I guess I wanted I want to go back in time and be in that courtroom and see her do this. But and now anyway, so she was released, walked out into the sunshine with a little box with some her underwear, her, her a couple of shirts, a pair of pants, and a, and a Walkman, and then had to figure out you know what to do from there. So the one thing that the the question that burns in my mind is the prosecutor. Does the prosecutor ever come clean? Does the does in any of these cases, do the I I can't I, I I can imagine in their own minds, and I'm just totally being hypothetical here, that these prosecutors, they you know when you know another show I listened to of yours is the Central Park Five, where they they coerce these 14 year old kids into admitting that they raped someone even though they hadn't. Uh, you, you know, in in their minds, I'm assuming that they're like, well, this person's gone into a little trouble in the past. They're bound to get into some real trouble in the future. So fuck it. We'll just we'll just prevent anything bad from happening and, and, and throw it to them. Or do they there's no fucking way that the prosecutor believes that she did it. No. There would have been no way that, that it just never made any sense. It doesn't make it never nothing about it made any sense. Um, but you know this you know, when the ball starts rolling down the hill in these cases, it's really hard to stop it. And, you know, various, you know, there are various psychologists have studied this phenomenon, right? There's tunnel vision that takes over. You know, once you sort of settle on a narrative, then you ignore or, or push away or, or, or cover up the facts that interfere with that narrative. And, um, you know, it, it puzzles me. I mean, the Central Park Five, again, those kids were so young, they hadn't done anything else before. And they knew in that case that it was only one perpetrator. And they, they had every reason to believe that it was the guy who it was, who turned out to be Matthias Reyes. And so, you know, your theory goes a little bit out the window for me 
when, and I think this is one of the most important points that we can get across, is that when you convict the wrong person, when you arrest, prosecute, and convict the wrong person, by definition, you allow the right person to remain free. And by the right person, I mean the actual perpetrator. But so, so why do they do it? That's the thing I don't understand. I don't understand it either, and I never has will. Anyone, have there ever been, in all of these cases and all these people you've spoken to, have there ever been prosecutors or, you know, I mean, I, I can imagine people on the stand who, who, who like come to their senses and realize what has happened, like the woman here who had the heart attack on the stand, obviously. Um, but has there ever been instances where the prosecutor has been like, oh my God, I fucked up so badly and I'm so sorry and let me fix this? Well, there was a 60 Minutes episode about a year ago where um, a DA from New Orleans um, went uh, to his, I guess, I guess you could say to his credit, he went on 60 Minutes and apologized and talked about how this wrongful conviction where this guy he had framed had been on death row for, I don't know, 30-something years um, and turned out to be innocent. And he got up there and said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something like, you know, it's, it's you know, blown a hole through my soul or something like that. But, you know, it's sort of hollow, right? I mean, like, you had a lot of chances before now to come clean. And it's a, it's a really baffling phenomenon. You know, it's like the Stanford prison experiment on steroids, right? Because it doesn't make sense. I mean, I'm a person who... I believe in a system of laws. You know, I grew up, you know, you know, obviously respecting the uniform. And I still believe that, you know, most people in the system are good people. I think that most police officers are good people. I think most prosecutors are good people. I think there's, and we need them. And it's a, it's a hard job. You don't get paid a lot of money, yeah. a lot of pressure. You know what I mean? You're, you're, and, but somehow or other, things get so twisted that, you know, they, they, we, they end up doing things that are beyond the pale. In order to in order to obtain convictions for people who they would in some cases would have every reason to know are innocent, or in other cases they actually know are innocent. Do these what percentage of the people that you have interviewed um, for this and people you've spoken to related to the Innocence Project that have gotten out of jail? What, do, are all of them forgiving, or some of them resentful, or is how do they all feel? So. You know, this is why I call this work selfish altruism, right? Because the most extraordinary people I meet, and I meet a lot of extraordinary people, right? I live in a, you know, I was born lucky, right? I was born in New York City, um, you know, and have been, you know, blessed with the opportunity to be around some of the most amazing people on the planet, you know, from uh, political leaders to, you know, the Deepak Chopras of the world to you name it. But the most extraordinary people to me are the people who have been through these unbelievable ordeals that they had nothing, that were not of their own making. Um, none of it was their own fault. And they come out with this grace. Like there's no better word I can think of to explain it because it's hard for me to think of any of them that are bitter. And, you know, I'll ask them. I had, um, you know, Darnell Phillips on my show the other day who just was released after 28 years for you know, a rape, they, they knew he didn't commit in Virginia. They knew it. And, um, you know, and, and he still had to come out and register because they still, even after DNA has proved his innocence, they still won't, they, they still only agreed to parole him. And I said to him, are you bitter? And he's like, no, I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I don't want to be like them. And, and, and it's interesting, Nick, because each of the exonerees has a different way of explaining the same thing. You in know? what way? Well, John Huffington, right, who was sentenced to death twice, double death sentence, got it 
overturned, then was resentenced to a double death sentence. I told him, you're the guy they can't kill. You should have, like, I mean, you should have your own show. <laughs> because, and then ultimately served 32 years, most of it on death row, and then was uh, released. Um, what was the crime that they accused him of doing? It was a murder. Um, and, um, you know, but John, I introduced him. I was uh, honored by the, one of an organization that I just think is incredible, the Southern Center for Human Rights. Um, I was an honoree at their dinner this year, and I, I shouted out John from the stage and told a little bit of his story. And afterwards, we were speaking, and someone walked up to him and said, you don't seem bitter. How's that possible? And he says, man, he goes, that's why the rearview mirror is small and the windshield's big. That's a great line. And I was like, damn, John, you man, <laughs> listen. And by the way, I encourage you, follow John Huffington, at John Huffington. He's actually uh, an incredible guy. He looks like he belongs in a boardroom. He's a big, square-jawed guy. He lives in uh, he lives in Maryland, and he's looking for uh, opportunities for employment. He's been working for the uh, for the st- uh, uh, living classrooms there. Um, you know, he's, he's done great work uh, helping kids. And, um, yeah, look up at John Huffington. It's just like it sounds. Spell it out. And so these th- these folks that get out, do they do they get anything? I mean, sometimes you read the, the, these stories of like some compensation. Not that like thirty years in in prison is uh, you can monetize that even if, when you're when you're innocent. But does the state to apologize? Do they get something? Does, what happens? Great question. And, and you know, it's interesting that because over the. 25 years I've been doing this and proselytizing about it everywhere from in, in, on the golf course to in an elevator, like wherever I am, I'm always, you know, talking to people because I'm obsessed. And I want to talk to you about Rob Will's case because that's the one I'm really obsessed with now, um, which, is, which is, you know, a, a very contemporaneous topic. But um, the two questions I get asked most frequently are the one you just asked me. Yeah. Do the exonerees get compensation? And the other one is, does anything happen to the prosecutors when they've been proven to have, you know, wrongfully convicted somebody willfully? And the answer is sometimes and almost never. Those are the two answers. Um, And so on the first one, you know, we recently passed a compensation statute in um, Kansas, which makes Kansas the 32nd state that has a compensation statute. So, but even then, those statutes are you know, they vary so widely in terms of the amount you're entitled to get, right? In some states, I think it's New Hampshire, the most you can get is $25,000, no matter how long you're in for. I think in Montana, you're only entitled to education credits and certain other things like that, but no money. And then there are other states where you can, ironically, Texas has the best um, compensation statute, where I believe in Texas, uh, you get 80000 a year for every year you were in, and then an $80,000 annuity. Still not a lot of money for what you went through. And it's interesting, too, because Kirk Bloodsworth, amazing guy from Maryland, sentenced to death, served nine years, right? Exonerated with DNA. I think he was the first uh, death row DNA exoneree. And um, he got $300,000. But he calculated it, and he said, you know what, that's like $3.13 an hour for being on death row for nine years. Who's taking that deal? You know yeah. what I mean? He was a U.S. Marine, honorably, honorably discharged, never been in trouble. You know, and the stories he tells from death row are insane. So it's something that we need to do a much better job of. A lot of exonerees get nothing. And, you know, it can be held up on a technicality. You know, in Florida, for instance, you could be exonerated. Like one, I'm trying to think which one it was, um, but there's a case in Florida where a guy was exonerated, served 25 years in prison, and was due to get, I think, a half a million dollars. And they found out that he had a prior conviction for possession of one tablet of ecstasy and because of that they were able to give him nothing so if you have any priors at all you get nothing that's so fucked up it's so fucked up you're listening to inside the hive with nick bilton 
Speaking of prison reform, one of the places that I go to read about this specific topic is, of course, The New Yorker, which represents some of the best writing in America today. Beyond publishing the best writers in the world, The New Yorker holds people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling, both online and in print. The New Yorker covers uh, such a wide range of topics. It's I could list them for hours, including politics, news, international affairs, climate change, the environment, pop culture, the arts, fiction, food, humor, cartoons, you name it. Uh, The New Yorker not only goes in-depth on stories that we all want to learn about, that we know we want to learn about, like the Mueller report and Trump and other political topics, but they go into these stories that you didn't know that you were so obsessed with until you actually started reading them. Tens of thousands of words long on topics like paper jams and fault lines and heirloom beans and stink bugs, articles that will literally blow your mind once you start reading them. They have writers who have won more awards than you could imagine for incredible criticism, like Hilton Owls, who uh, won the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for Criticism, Ronan Farrow, who, of course, you all know about, who was behind the Me Too movement. Uh, The list goes on. Um, They have a special offer for listeners this week over at The New Yorker. You can get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6. It's regularly $12. Plus wait for this one, a free New Yorker tote bag that's thrown in there. This includes home delivery of the print edition each week, unlimited access to thenewyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every single day, access to the apps, online archive, crowdsource puzzles, and more. Get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6, plus the exclusive tote bag, which will make you look amazing when you're walking down the street. All you need to do is go to newyorker.com slash hive. That's newyorker.com slash H-I-V-E. Listeners will save 50% when they enter the code hive. That's H-I-V-E. Once again, newyorker.com slash hive, 50% off. Get that tote bag. Uh, Just enter the code hive. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. Okay, so going to the question, which I was going to be my last question, uh, so I'll have to come up with a new one while we're talking. But um, the question of the prosecutors, are they ever, do they, or the cops that, you know, the detectives that clearly are manipulating the case, have there been instances where they get in trouble or does it just, no? Well, there's, you know, that's a, that's a very, again, it's a very, it's a question I get asked a lot. Um, and it, it depends on which one of those uh, categories of people you're talking about. You know, we see again and again 
uh, flaws in the system. Rolling Stone recently did that amazing article about the drug uh, scandals, the drug lab scandals in Massachusetts, right, where they had to overturn, where they're in the process of overturning 32,000 convictions because there were two, you know. 32,000. Yeah, 32,000 people. These two uh, chemists, Andy Dukin and the other one, were systematically lying and not even testing the drugs. The other one, whose name I'm forgetting, was high on drugs the whole time she was there, just stealing the drugs from the lab, like literally like the wolf guarding the hen house, right? And, um, and they were just not even testing the drugs, just making it up, sometimes, it, sometimes uh, adjusting the weight to make it a higher penalty. Why? Don't know. I mean, crazy. These are crazy people. There, there can be no rationale for that. So maybe they're looking. I mean, one of them had, you know, mental issues, um, you know, mental health issues. But then the state covered it up and covered it up and covered it up. I mean, they, they just, you know, they're still covering it up to an extent, right? There, it's so nuts. Like these are people, right? At the end of the day, these are people. All thirty-two thousand of those people are people who had hopes and dreams and lives and they have families, they have parents who care about them, they have, you know, and, the, and these are drug cases too, right? I mean, so it's, you know, some of them didn't even have drugs, right? They might've been, you know, it could have been another substance entirely that they were caught possessing and they did, the, the chemist just goes, yeah, no, I mean, the drug law, whatever they call that person, just goes, yeah, it was, uh, you know, Coke. methamphetamine, yeah. whatever it was, and, and then they adjusted the weight up so that they can get a higher sentence. And I mean, the, the breakdown is total. Those, those two women both ended up, they're both women, ironically, both ended up in jail themselves, not for particularly long sentences. But the crazy thing is that the state covered it up. And this is Massachusetts, for Christ's sakes, right? You would think that that would not happen there. So we do, you know, there, there are certainly cases of people in the system being caught. It takes too long. It's mystifying to me why people in, in you know, higher up the ladder wouldn't be more aggressive about, you know, sort of trying to ensure that the system is working properly and that people who are, you know, breaking the rules are, are, are removed and, and disciplined and that the people who are victims of theirs get, you know, fair treatment going forward. But isn't part of it, you know, in some of your podcasts with these, in interviews with these folks, you hear the stories of, um, you know, the irony of the fact that the, the, the judge and the jury believe the jailhouse snitch but they won't believe when the jailhouse snitch says that they lied, they'll believe the prosecutor um, because they're like, well, that's an upstanding citizen. I mean, isn't it part, part of it just this kind of psychology that, that we, I'm not, when I say we, I mean society wants to believe that the person doing the right thing is doing the right thing and it's very difficult to change people's minds about that? That's a great question and I've never been asked that question before, but yes, I think that's part of it. The other part of it is my friend Josh Dubin um, one of the top, um, you know, jury expert, jury selection experts in the country and an amazing uh, criminal defense lawyer who recently won a death penalty case in Florida, a reversal um, with a guy named Clemente Aguirre, also known as Shorty. Um, but Josh did a study recently where he showed that there is an, a very strong inherent bias among jurors that when they see someone in the defendant's box that they already believe they're guilty, which is actually, if you, as an amateur psychologist, I think that seems logical, right? Yep. They're up there. Most people go in thinking, and that's one of the reasons I, I do the podcast, right, is because I want to educate everyone who's listening to us right now as a potential juror. And I would encourage people, especially because the people who are listening to your podcast are educated and they're woke. And I say, you know, <laughs> for all of us, it's super annoying to be called for jury duty. But if you do get called, I encourage everyone to go and to serve because, you know, you you could save somebody's life. And when you do serve, 
you need to be aware of the causes of these wrongful convictions that we talk about on my show because there are so many of them. And it goes to, you know, everyone's watched Making a Murderer, right? And we've seen what goes on there. It's nuts. It's yeah. absolutely nuts. And then there's John Grissom's show. Well, there are a lot of shows now. The Last Defense is amazing about the Julius Jones case in Oklahoma, which is totally insane. Give us we- the give us the, the Tomb Grenade character version of that one. Oh, he's, I mean, he's sentenced to death and it's just painfully obvious that he didn't do it. I mean, I encourage everyone to watch the show. I don't, I don't really want to go into it in detail, but watch The Last Defense, the Julius Jones episode, or look it up online. I mean, he is an innocent man on death row. And how does that not just make us all want to just do something? Well, the thing that I, doing some research before we spoke today, you, there's two questions I have and they're related is one is there are it seems like there are a lot of fucking people who are in jail that are innocent. Uh, and it seems like a predominant number of people on death row specifically are innocent. How does that happen? Why is it the the harshest, craziest thing that we can do to someone in the judicial system? Most of the, a lot of the people on, that are there don't deserve to be. Well, I guess one theory I, I would, you know, put forth on that is that when you have a, a case that merits the death penalty, it's typically a high-profile case, right? It's a, it's a, it's a murder. It could be a murder of a uh, someone, a, pre, a premeditated murder. It could be a capital murder. So there's a lot of pressure to get that solved, right? And so um, sometimes lines get crossed, and you know, you know, things get fudged in order to obtain those convictions. We know that these things happen in clusters as well. New Orleans has been a hotbed for wrongful convictions, um, and you know, at one, uh, the, the prosecutor, former prosecutor there, Harry Connick Sr. Um, we know that six of his eight death row uh, cases through one period of time all turned out to be innocent, and we don't know about the other two. Um, John and what Thompson. happened to him? Did he ever? No, nothing. Nothing. Does I mean, anyone ever ask him? Don't you feel like a pile of human fucking shit? I don't know. I mean, but that's seventy five percent, and so like it, it's just it's so like how it's so broken. And, and I talk to people who are pro death penalty, and I'll say to them because there are some really thoughtful people who are pro death penalty. And so I say to them, well, if you're pro death penalty. You know that the justice system's broken and that things don't work the way they're supposed to. And even in the best case scenario, even if, if everybody was doing the level best they could do, and even if we had a defense system that was adequate, because we know that these people, many of them are represented by uh, uh, defenders. I mean, we have death penalty cases where the, the, the defense lawyer had would previously been a divorce lawyer, right, or a real estate lawyer mm-hmm. who had just taken the case. We have, we have cases where they were asleep during the trial or they were had mental illness diagnosable or they were drug addicts or whatever it was. And these are the people that are defending you and so but i'll say like okay if we know that the system doesn't work great now because some people break the rules and some people are incompetent on the defense side and there's a lot of other problems and i think being a defense lawyer is a thankless job as a public defender and i and i have a lot of respect for the people who do it and do it well um but if we know that even in the best case scenario, it doesn't function perfectly, and we know that our scenario is far from perfect, then what I would ask you, if you're pro-death penalty, is what percentage of innocent people is it okay to execute in order to fulfill society's bloodlust for executing people who are actually guilty? And most people say, no, 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 you can't execute innocent people. I go, but we do, and you know that, and we've proven it, right? Cameron, Todd, Willingham, et cetera. Etc. So what percentage is it? Is it 1%? Is it 10%? What are you okay with? 
because we know in our criminal justice system, there's more, you know, the best social scientists that have studied this, the top social scientists estimate that there's at least 5% of people in prison are innocent. So that doesn't change when you get to death row. If anything, it might be worse. Well, it's interesting when you look at some of the statistics uh, from the Innocence Project, what also is so fascinating is that 70% of the exonerated are part of minority group. And so it's not, you know, it's not these kind of white folks that are, that are the ones that are going to end up in the situation. It's, it's blacks and Hispanics, right? But they do, too. I mean, Richard Glossop in, in Oklahoma is as innocent as could possibly be. You know, you have he's on death row. You have Rob Will in Texas, as innocent as could be. And a federal judge said so, but his hands were tied and he, he lamented that. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of... What do, you, what do you mean the federal judge said that he he knew he was innocent? Or? Yeah, in, in Rob Will's case, a federal judge uh, Keith Ellison um, said uh, that he... Um, he said there were grave errors in every phase of this. Um, I, I can get the direct quote. Um, but yeah, he, he said, uh, he, he, in, in spite of the considerable evidence of innocence and the lack of, of any eyewitnesses or probative forensic evidence, um, I regret that I, my hands are tied, basically. I'm paraphrasing now, but that's what he said. And so, but so this guy could is be... Is he still on death row? He's on death row. I visited him on, uh, a week ago today. And he is an extraordinary guy. I mean, he is... He's just an amazing, amazing guy. I mean, he's such an, an incredible intellect, as well as being a, a you know, certified yoga uh, master practitioner. And a, he's taught himself the law. He's a certified paralegal. But he, I was with the, the dean of NYU the other day, and I, I told her that uh, Dean Wofford, I told her, you know, if you plucked him, if we could pluck him out of death row, which I'd very much like to do, and I'm, I'm doing everything I can, and put him in one of your classes, I would bet dollars to donuts that whatever class you put him in, he would be the most brilliant student that you have. Why is the judge's hands tied? And if the judge's if a judge's hands are tied, uh, knowing that this guy's innocent and he's on death row, who has the ability to untie them? Only the president of the United States? No, this is a state case, and it's a it's a tragic miscarriage of justice. Um, but well, it's it a, a, what what happened in this case. In this case, he was wrongfully convicted of the murder of a police officer. the The officer had been shot seven times, and Rob had no gunshot residue on him. This is not a dispute. So that right there, it makes it a scientific impossibility that he did it. Yep. Um, and then it gets worse and worse from there. There's, there's incompetent defense. Uh, there's, there's, um, was know, he there at the time? He was there, yeah. He and his friend had stolen a car. And, um, and it, it, got, it, it went horribly wrong from there. He was in handcuffs at the time that the officer was killed. Who, who was the person that killed him? Do they know? Yes, the but friends. It's, but it's uh, it's it's a complex uh, it's a complex situation. Well, not really, even because there's five there's affidavits sworn affidavits from five people, who all said that the real killer was this guy Rocky Rosario. You know, so and where's Rocky Rosario? Is he in prison or no? I don't even know. I think he's been in and out. But uh, yeah, it's 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 so bad this case, and he it's such an extraordinary situation because society's being deprived. So wait, wait hold on before I. I just so I understand, so Rocky Rosario, Rocky Rosario shoots this guy, this cop. Uh, the guy who's in prison right now is um, uh, his hand. He was in handcuffs when the shooting happened. And 
how and you've got sworn affidavit saying he didn't do it. The judge is saying he didn't do it. So who can get him out? So the problem is it traces back to the crime bill, which was ninety six, right? Where under Clinton? Yeah. And there was an aspect of that bill, uh, which is called EDPA, A-E-D-P-A. I forget exactly what that stands for, but it's the it's, it's the thing that played a role in keeping Brendan Dassey in prison, right, in the, in the famous Making a Murderer case, because it really set such strong limitations and strict limitations on the federal court's ability to overturn wrongful convictions in um, in state court that I think that is, in this case, what prevented Judge Ellison from being able to, um, you know, to, yeah, and he, I'm going to give you the direct quote now because I just pulled it up on my phone. So Judge Keith Ellison, U.S. federal judge, said, and I quote, on top of the considerable evidence supporting Will's innocence and the important errors in the trial court, there must also be addressed total absence of eyewitness testimony or strongly probative forensic evidence. With facts such as these and only circumstantial evidence supporting Will's conviction and death sentence, the court laments the strict limitations placed upon it. The state executive branch might consider the evidence of actual innocence in this case and exercise restraint in the execution of Will's sentence. And here's where it gets heavy. You ready? So I get the chills every time I read this. And again, this is a direct quote. Rob Will's case has errors of grave proportions in all its phases. I mean... Yeah, and I'm looking at you now with your eyebrows raised, and I'm going, yeah. I mean, like, how are we allowing this to go on? So I have a, a million questions to unpack there. Uh, first, I want to jump to Clinton. So I've spoken to folks before related to prison reform and so on, and the predominant feeling from people I've spoken to on both sides of the aisle is that so much of this, of the situation we find ourselves in today in all of these cases with people in jail for life for having, you know, an ounce of weed on them or, you know, the instances of this case that you're talking about in these cases of death row, a lot of it was actually Clinton's doing that gets us to the situation where we have this prison problem that we have today. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the, um, the crime bill was a terrible bill. Um, it was... There's so many aspects of it that are so wrong, but it's had a lot to do with the um, mass incarceration problem that we have today. And, um, and one of those very nefarious aspects of that bill, and to be fair, it was passed with the support of leaders from the urban community at the time when there was this whole media frenzy about super predators and all this nonsense about the crack. You know, the, the big, you know there always has to be a demon drug, right? At the time it was crack. There's always something though. Yeah. Right? It, it, it feeds, it, the media, you know, it's, it's good for the media. They, they, you know, it makes for bold headlines. It allows us to demonize a certain group of people, which is a psychological phenomena that human beings have, right? The other, you have to like, make the other, you know, it makes you feel better about yourself in a certain way, whatever it is. But yeah, and I'm just looking up the anti-death, the anti-terrorism and effective death penalty act. Um, you know, the, the, I'm quoting the New Yorker now, which said it, it, it's the surely one of the worst statutes ever passed by Congress and signed into law by a president. The heart of the law is a provision saying that even when a state court misapplies the constitution, a defendant cannot necessarily have his day in federal court. Instead, he must prove that the state's court's the state court's decision was quote contrary to what the Supreme Court has determined is quote clearly established federal law, and that the decision was an unreasonable application of it. So this law gutted the federal writ of habeas corpus, which a federal court can use to order the release of someone wrongly imprisoned. I mean, that is incredible, 
right? It's so terrible that yeah. you can't imagine how, I mean, how could it be that you sit there and you're like sitting there innocent in prison and a judge is going, you're innocent. I know you're innocent. I'm really sorry. I can't help you. It's like, Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. So how does this play out with him and, and people like him? Um, he's got, I think, another avenue in the courts. And is the um, governor, is there talk of a pardon? Is there... I have no idea what the prospects for a pardon are going to be. Obviously, that would be a, a you know, that would be a, a wonderful outcome. But in general... Governors don't like granting pardons or clemencies in cases of actual innocence. My experience has what, been... What do you mean? <laughs> say that again. Well, so governors, and maybe I didn't say that right, but governors in general, in my experience, and presidents, are more apt to grant clemencies in cases where there's no question of guilt or innocence, but in fact, the sentence seemed to be wildly inappropriate. Right. So those are mandatory sentencing laws. You know, I've been on the board of families against mandatory minimums for 25 years now, and it's a wonderful, wonderful organization. It's FAMM.org. That's F like Frank, AMM.org, which is doing the, this amazing work to, you know, roll back mandatory sentencing laws across the country and state and federal court. Of course, they were big drivers behind the First Step Act. Um, so, yeah, so, so it's, you know, a governor, I guess you could sort of understand why a governor might say, well, I'm not going to be able to retry this case. I'm not a court. I'm not a judge or a jury. You know, you could look at these papers and advocates or whatever, but they go, I don't know, like, you know, the courts are supposed to handle this. I'm not saying that's right. Um, you know, if, if anyone's ever crazy enough to make me governor of anything, I would certainly take a different approach. But in general, a governor can look at a case of a mandatory sentence and go, well, wait a minute, this guy was caught with, you know, like Weldon Angelos, right? Caught with $950, selling $950 worth of weed and sentenced to 55 years in, in prison. Like, wait a minute, uh, none of that makes any sense. So, yeah, so I think that the prospects for a pardon are, uh, you know, listen, if somebody listening might have contact with the governor's office, if you do, Rob Will, and, and go to freerobwill.org or freerobwill on Instagram. Um, follow me on Instagram too, by the way, because I posted about it last week. My Instagram is at it's Jason Flom. That's I T S Jason Flom, um, J S O N F L O M. But yeah, Rob's case is, um, you know, it's tragic on so, so many levels. So when I was a kid, I I was a bad kid. I used to get in a lot of trouble. <clears throat> Got arrested a few times, uh, but I would sneak out of my house every night. That means you can't get TSA clearance, right? That's bad. I can't. It was no felony. It was oh, good. Okay. I had a couple of felonies that were pushed down to misdemeanors because I was like 16. I was just a fucking idiot. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, I was just getting fights and things like that and, and whatnot. But but I was the, the reason I bring that up. But you were white. I was white. You were, yeah, you're still uh, white. And um, it's true. I was in Florida of all places. But I bring That's it up because. White privilege. It's a thing. Yeah. yeah. No, it absolutely is. Um, and, you know, I just got probation and had to do, you know, uh, I had to clean up garbage on the side of the road and volunteer and all these things. Um, and then, of course, when I turned 17 and realized I could be tried as an adult, I got my shit together. But I was I was a bad kid, and I used to sneak out of my house every night. I used to steal my dad's car. I would, you know, do kids things that bad kids do. And I now live in Los Angeles, and I have two sons that are still tiny, 
But if they were teenagers, it would be impossible for them to do the things that I did. We have, like, it's like, you know, like everyone, we have cameras all over the place and like alerts if like a bunny rabbit runs by or something like that. You know, my, there's sensors on my car that say how many miles it's gone that update my, there's all these things, you know, that exist today, these technologies. Uh, and, and I would know if my son, who is three and a half right now, but if he was 14, snuck out of the house and took my car. So the, the reason I bring that up is the question is, is we live in a time where technology is everywhere. You've got DNA evidence. You have all these things. Is it accurate to say that we, and maybe optimistic, to say that in the future there will be less of these cases because so much technology exists that will make it so, you know, if there was a camera with the Sunny case with that shooting in that rest stop when the two cops were killed, they could pull up the camera, see that the guy who actually did it and it wasn't her and she wouldn't have gone to jail. Is that, am I being too optimistic to say that because of technology, there'll be less of these in the future? You know, that's a, that's a nice uh, uh, that's a nice vision. I think that on the first point, kids are always going to be rebellious, right? Um, hopefully not yours, but kids are rebellious in general, and that's never going to change. Um, the difference is now, uh, you know, when you were a kid, there were 300,000 people in, in prison in America. Well, at least when I was a kid. And now there's, you know, 2.2 million. So kids haven't changed. Americans haven't become more evil, right? We haven't, you know, we just have gone to this crazy system of mass incarceration, which does nothing but cost the, the you know, taxpayers money, right? And this is one of the reasons why conservatives hate it, right? Because it just, it's, it's a huge drain. I mean, there are states where we spend more money incarcerating people than we do educating them, you know, the college system. Like, that's just absolutely backwards. And you are a great example, right? Like, you weren't a bad person, no, I was just a bad kid with a friend, group of bad friends. You were like, you know, you were testing your limits. You were doing what teenagers do. And, you know, yet we extract revenge as a society on people who did the same things that you did, right? That most of the people that are listening are going, well, I did some shit, right? I mean, if you're listening out there, you're like, whoa, when I was a kid, I was like, oh, my God. You know, like, I mean, you're not unique. Not, no offense, but. No, no, yeah, I, but yeah, not, believe me. I, I mean, it's not I'm like you unique, were. I'm unique in the fact that I am white. And if I wasn't, I probably wouldn't have that felony would have been a felony, you know? But, but isn't it amazing, right, the, the human potential that's being lost in all of this, right? You know, you look at people like Sean Hopwood, right, is a great example, who was a bank robber who served 11 years, pleaded guilty, served 11 years, came out, and now, you know, he's won cases in the Supreme Court. He's now a law professor at Georgetown. Like, they're... they're People are not inherently bad. It's what Brian Stevenson says, I believe everyone's better than the worst thing they've ever done. Now, look, I think there are people that belong in prison, right? I mean, there are, there are certain people who are really dangerous, and those people belong in prison, and we have to figure out a way to keep society safe. I'm not against that. But I'm against putting people who are addicts, treating people who are, you know, 85% of drug arrests in this country for simple possession. What the fuck are we doing right that's insane and no, we there, know- are, there are there are women uh on death row uh, there was a case i was reading about recently not on death row sorry and um in life in prison because she, there was one woman who was caught with a bag of weed i mean it's the fact that and yet weed is now becoming you know it's legal at, oh, you could walk five feet away from here and go buy it at a store it's like the the system is so broken it's just insane and i think that what's 
it's what's promising is I don't care if the conservatives don't like it because they don't want to pay for it. The fact that they don't like it and both sides of the aisle don't like it, I think is is promising. Yeah, Whereas, I mean, look, if I could wave a, wave a magic wand, I would I would pick up all the prisons and jails in America, shake them upside down, let everybody out, and then go pick up the people who are really dangerous and put them back in. Like just a total reset, right? I mean, and people can say, "Oh, you sound like a crazy person," whatever. It's not really that crazy, you know. You look the way other countries do it. We have four point four percent of the world's population, and we have twenty five percent of the world's prison population. And inside, that's an, that's crazy enough, right? We lock people up at five times the rate, more than five times the way the rest of the Western world. And we lock people up for drugs at a rate that's insane. And we lock minorities up at a rate that is much higher than South Africa at the height of apartheid, right? We lock black men up at a rate that is several times higher per capita than South Africa at the height of apartheid. Process that for a second and come back to me. And then inside of those numbers, and I don't want to make everybody dizzy, but we have 33% of the world's female prison population, right? Now... What, so we have one out of every three women in prison in the world is in America. Are American women evil? I don't think so. Like one of them gave birth to me. I really appreciated it. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> women are like that, that. It's crazy. We have too many laws for starters. We have thousands and thousands of laws in the book. And well, the other thing, not only do we have too many laws, but there's a statistic out there that says that every human being in America breaks three felony, does three uh, Three felonies a day. I like, just, that you just... Shit that... Like, there's a law... There was one I was reading the other day that... Because uh, I follow the web, the Twitter account, Crime a Day, and there was one... It's, like, illegal to spit on someone else's grass, a felony or something, in, like, one of, in some state. Like, it's, like, illegal for your dog to go to the toilet uh, and, you know, on someone else's... Pro- like, there's just insane little things that exist that you could go to jail for the rest of your life for... And they're just standard little things. Yeah. And so the question becomes, again, like we, you only can look at it one of two ways. And, and Jim Webb, the former senator from uh, who was, a, you know, I think he was the secretary of the Navy under Reagan. Right. This is not a this is not a bleeding heart liberal. But Jim Webb studied the prison systems in America and in Japan and did a did an analysis which showed that, that we Japan, we lock people up at 14 times the rate per capita. That Japan Crazy. does. And yet our crime rates are almost the same, almost identical, right? And so th- there's, no, there's clearly no deterrent effect. And so his thing is, the only one, two conclusions you can draw is either we have, again, the most evil people in the world, which we don't. I love my country. I love our people. I walk around. I don't see evil people. Um, or we're doing something totally wrong. And the only, so, so then you break that down. You go, okay, well, the only conclusion is that we're doing it totally wrong. We need to change it. So right now... While we have all this crazy shit going on in this country with President Trump, one of the things that is happening is there is a conversation around prison reform. One of the people that's behind it is Jared Kushner. Um, are Do you think, I mean, it's ironic because Trump was the guy who wanted to put everyone in, um, uh, who wanted the Central Park Five to, you know, go to jail for the rest of their lives and we executed actually. executed um is there a world where kushner and you know kim kardashian and people like those that that are clearly in a place where they can have an impact on trump and the decisions that are made in the white house is there a world where they actually anything changes under this administration 
I think it's possible. I mean, we have to believe it, right? We have to embrace optimism on this thing because otherwise it becomes too, it, it, it just becomes, a, you know, too big of a dragon to slay. But there is some movement, and even in the federal system. The First Step Act is, you know, the, the, a lot of people, you know, point out the different aspects of it, and it's certainly far from perfect, but it is a reform, and it is affecting actual people, Americans, citizens who are being released and that's great and jared kushner is a serious advocate i mean he is um he's very knowledgeable on this subject he is people are going to have wildly different views on him and whatever you want to say but the fact is i can tell you that he is a dedicated he has dedicated a big percentage of his his mind space and his um you know his capital uh, working capital, whatever you want to call it, his, his, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, his, you know, he's putting heart and soul and mind into this and he's in a position to make a difference. Um, so, you know, he get, you know, it, it, when it gives me hope, I mean, I think, look, the States, 90% of people roughly in, in prison and jail in America are in the States anyway. Uh, and we have to, and state reforms are happening in red States and States you wouldn't expect in Louisiana, you know, in, in Mississippi, Texas has been progressive to, to an extent on this stuff. So there's a growing awareness and media and your podcast right now, what we're doing is playing a role in all of this, right? There's more and more attention. And my podcast, Wrongful Conviction, I think that people are listening and going, whoa, I didn't know this stuff happened the way it does. Like, I didn't know that people falsely confessed to crimes, like all the time, right? And it's amazing because I'll do presentations and I ask people, I did one the other day out here in L.A., um, where I spoke with a guy named Jerome Dixon, who was re- uh, released, uh, I think, seven years ago after serving 20, 21 and a half years for a crime he didn't commit. And, you know, you ask people, how many people, raise your hand if you would ever confess to a crime you didn't commit? Nobody raises their hand. You can do this experiment. If you're a teacher, if you're ever in front of a group, no one will raise their hand. But the fact is, we know that 25% of the first, I think it was 150 wrongful convictions we examined that were, that were proven to be false with DNA, those people confess to the crimes they didn't commit. So there's, you know, it's and they con- they confess because they're just coerced. like just like the Central Park Five, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they see no other way out. They're locked to the, you know, the the pod- the podcast you did with um, uh, the guy from the Central Park Five who was 14, locked in a room, detectives coming in now, yelling at him, not yelling at him, not feeding him, no water. Eventually, you know, it's the. Well, Jerome, I mean, Jerome, who I was talking to out here, you know, who's doing amazingly well. I mean, he's doing fantastically well in life, and I have all the respect in the world for him. But he, you know, he talked about he was interrogated for 25 hours with one bathroom break. They gave him some boxed lunch, which he said he couldn't eat, because who could eat in that situation, right? And finally, he, he broke down. I mean, and, you know, again, they knew that they, there was zero evidence that it, could, it, it, it was him. It couldn't have been him. You know, the tragic thing is that you know, and I tell people and people who are listening, you know, this happens to, to people from all walks of life, right? It, of course, it happens disproportionately to minorities. It happens disproportionately to poor people. But, and that's the national shame. But it happens to people from all walks of life. And so one of the things I talk about on my podcast, Wrongful Conviction, is if someone you or someone you love is picked up and questioned for something they didn't do, don't say anything. Like all you say is your name, your address, and I want a lawyer because, you know, you can be tricked or, you know, even smart, like amazingly military people. We know that adolescents are most likely to falsely confess because the adolescent brain isn't fully formed. So a disproportionate number of false confessions occur to people who are in their teens. 
your adolescent brain isn't fully formed until you're 25. Um, but also military people, strangely enough, are more likely to falsely confess than other people, people, people with military background. And that's, the theory is that that's because they are used to obeying people of, you know, in authority positions, authority figures. So anyway. Yeah. What, so um, I have a, last, a few last questions for you and, and, uh, and then we'll wrap up. But when you, you just said you were, you were in, uh, on death row last week talking to a, um, what was his name again? Rob Will. Rob Will. That's uh, free, freerobwill.org. And, and when you, you walk, I've done work in prisons before and um, volunteered and so on. And, and you, you leave and you have this feeling of, it's kind of like a mixed feeling of like relief that you're not in there, but sorrow for the people who are. And when you, when you spend time with these folks who, you know, didn't do something like this, that are on death row, what is the feeling like for you as you go into these, these meetings and when you come out of them? Well, I, you know, I had this feeling, I visited a guy named Yen Suring, um, two guys in prison in Virginia at a place called Buckingham, maximum security prison. Yen's has been in for 32 years for a crime he didn't commit. Um, and he's another guy who's a brilliant intellectual. Um, and, uh, I spent three hours there, uh, about an hour and a half with each of these guys. Um, and I was with, a a couple of attorneys who I thought might be able to help. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a highly, you know, it, it, it's a lot of, you know, mental energy. I mean, I, it, psychically, it, you know, it takes a lot because you only have a short period of time. You're really focused. I mean, I believe that the meaning of life is found in being present. And so when I'm in that situation, I'm very present. I mean, you're in a very strange environment, but you're locked in with this person who you desperately want to help. And, so for me, it really, you know, centers me and, and my brain, makes me feel useful. There's a lot of different emotions. All of them are, you know, are things that feed my soul. So I call, I call it selfish altruism. But, and of course, you don't have a phone with you, right? We're all distracted all the time, but you can't bring a phone in there. So there's nothing to distract you. You're just in this little room. But the amazing thing is I walked out of that prison. And of course, I felt badly that I couldn't walk out with those guys. Um, Jens, in particular, occupies a place in my, you know, deep in my soul that I just, I, I feel a, a, a like a, almost a primal need to help this man. So, and he's the subject of my current podcast that's out on wrongful conviction um, on, you know, iTunes and everywhere else that you listen to your podcast. But um, the crazy thing is, Nick, that I walked out into about a 40 degree light rain whatever day it was, a Tuesday or something. And I felt, I had this moment where I thought, you know what, there's really nowhere else I'd rather be. I mean, I wish I didn't have to be here. I wish these guys weren't in there. And I don't, I don't like having to visit them and leave them there at all. But, you know, I could be doing most anything, you know, golfing, learning to surf, whatever, you know. But this is my calling. And... You know, I'm just going to keep doing it until I have no more breath left to take. Have you, um, when these folks do get out, do they have a hard time assimilating back into society? Or is it different than, you know? I'm so glad you asked that, you know, because I, you know, I, I refer to this particular um, aspect of this whole 
miserable subject as what I call the second punishment, right? And so as a society, we've developed this weird prejudice against people who are coming out of the system when we are a country that believes everyone loves a second everyone loves america loves a comeback right um we should love second chances we know that you know murderers almost never reoffend, which is interesting right um but in general i think people they we know that people age out of crime we know that people make mistakes we know that you made mistakes when you were a kid i made mistakes when i was a kid almost everyone listening has done something wrong. And like you said, I just downloaded that book, actually, Three Felonies a Day. Um, so as a society, you know, we, I think, are, are unique among Western nations in that we strip people of the right to vote. We prevent them from getting access to uh, public housing, in some cases, scholarships. Um, there's, we just put up all these obstacles. There's the box you have to check to, when you're putting out employment applications. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? You know, the interesting thing is that HR professionals will tell you that the most loyal employees and some of the best employees they have, disproportionately high, are people who are formerly incarcerated. You know, and in a country where a lot of people listening run companies, and they know that one of the issues that, that faces major, you know, Fortune 500 companies and others in this country is that you, you hire people, you train them, and they leave for a better opportunity. Whereas we know that from, from empirical research, statistical research, that people who are formerly incarcerated are more loyal, either because they look at it as other people may not give them the same opportunity or they're grateful for having had the opportunity. So they turn out to be among the hardest workers and the best people that I know. I have a, a huge family of formerly incarcerated people. When my phone rings, it's more likely than not someone who's either inside or, or you know, or someone who's exonerated or someone who's out. Um, and I, I get such an immense, um, you know, uh, feeling of, um, I don't know what, it's a, it's a complicated emotion, but, you know, being, a, being in a position to do something to help these people get back on their feet yep. is something that uh, I think it's, uh, you know, it's almost like a moral imperative to me. Um, so last question, what if people listening want to help in some way, what, what's, the, what's your advice? Well, you know, the easiest thing always is to write a check or, yeah. to, or to host a fundraiser or an event or something like that. And that's obviously harder than writing a check. Innocenceproject.org. Um, you know, I, I, as you said in the beginning of the podcast, I'm the founding board member of the Innocence Project in New York. Innocenceproject.org. Um, go there. It'll connect you to opportunities to do anything from, you know, writing letters to, uh, you know, starting, uh, you know, a, a movement, um, or getting involved in, in various different ways. Um, and it's going to take, you know, it's going to take a, a, a huge effort. We need a lot more people. We need more money to hire more lawyers. We need more help across the board. We need people to vote right. And in, in district attorneys races, um, and, and elect progressive prosecutors. Um, I think that's super important. And, um, yeah, but I think innocenceproject.org. I would also recommend famm.org. If you're in California, California Innocence Project does great work. Um, so, yeah, go to the website, uh, check out, you know, wrongful conviction, listen to these other things, you know, and, and let's get involved. And trust me, it's something you will, you know, once you get in, you'll, you'll thank me later because it's, a, it's an amazing thing to be a part of. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to this. It's been fascinating. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks to my guest today, Jason Flum. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find this on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there, preferably a 17-star one. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, and thank you, of course, to my sponsor this week, The New Yorker. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.